Amen. You guys may be seated. It's incredible to worship together as a family, isn't it? Uh, have those, call these the, our weekend services are uh, it's overflow time of worship, meaning uh, it's the overflow of our worship throughout the week. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 13. We're going to get started with our Roman series again. We're going to pick up Romans chapter 13, the first seven verses. I want to read our passage just to start us off, and then I want to explain why it is that we, we find ourselves in this section of the book of Romans. The first seven verses of Romans chapter 13, the Apostle Paul says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Over the course of this summer, we've been examining this uh, letter the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote to the, uh, the church in Rome, and we spent a lot of time on doctrine. And although Pastor Sean's done an excellent job of, of pulling out practical applications for those doctrines, it wasn't until we got to Romans chapter 12 that we, we have an opportunity to see the Apostle Paul begin to get practical. We've labored together and, uh, to understand what it means to, to be justified by grace alone through faith alone. The Apostle Paul, he spends the, the first 11 chapters of Romans unpacking this doctrine that the only reason we're saved is not because of our works, but it's by the grace of God alone. And we receive that by faith alone. And so we've worked hard to understand that. And, and then now, uh, Pastor Sean brought us to a couple of weeks ago, Romans chapter 12, where we began to look at the effects that the gospel should have in our lives. One pastor, appropriately, he coins this the, the gospel edges. And I'm going to say that a few times this morning. And meaning it means that, that, that when someone's changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, it should touch all areas of life, every aspect of life. In other words, there's nothing in life that the gospel should not affect. In chapter 12, it really shows the, the theological mind of the Apostle Paul. And I love it because he understands that you can't get to this part um, in the book of Romans until, until he's explained the gospel, until we've grasped the gospel. See, if, he would have, if, if the Apostle Paul would have gotten to this part that we're going to look at today in, in, the, in chapter 12 that we started looking at three weeks ago when, when Pastor Sean taught us, if we, we looked at those in rever reverse order, then the church wouldn't be the church, would it? 
and just be a bunch of people who gather together, who learn how to act the right way, do the right things, be good. But the Apostle Paul, he, he starts with the gospel, and then he gets to how the gospel should play out in our lives. And that's where we are now. And so what did Pastor Sean teach us a few weeks ago? He told us that the gospel should transform our minds. It should transform our minds. Romans chapter 12, the first couple of verses, what Pastor Sean spent pretty much his entire sermon on a few weeks ago. He says, the Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Then he goes on to say, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The gospel should transform our minds and consequently it should conform our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit to present us as holy and acceptable before God the Father. That's what the gospel should do. So now we're getting into the evidences of salvation, right? How do we, this side of eternity, know that our lives have been changed by the gospel? What are the evidences? That's what we're going to spend time on this morning. The first and foremost thing we see this side of eternity is that we have love and obedience to God. Love and obedience to God. This is going to be our overarching theme, if you will, this weekend. Everything falls underneath love and obedience to God the Father, okay? Now, don't misunderstand me. Like I said, love and obedience, it doesn't justify you before God, but it's, it's rather a result of your life being changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, your affections as believers, you've turned away from sin, and your affections have been turned toward Jesus Christ. And so now the Holy Spirit within you it's producing, it's producing these works, it's, rep, it's producing this love, it's producing this obedience. So what are some ways that your love and obedience to God are displayed once you've, once you've been changed by the gospel? Again, remember this phrase, gospel edges. How does the gospel touch the things in our life? How is the gospel tangible in our everyday life? Pastor Sean's going to continue on on this next week, but for context purposes, let me briefly summarize Romans chapter 12 so we can get to our main text in Romans chapter 13. According to Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 13, our love and obedience to God, the gospel, is displayed by our love and service for our church family. Our love and obedience to God is displayed by our love and service to our church family. I'm going to be reading several passages of Scripture to you this morning, so try your best to stick with me. The Apostle Paul says, For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not always have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. And he goes on to challenge us to use those gifts. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortations, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast 
to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Our love and obedience to God is displayed through our love and our service to our church family. Isn't that incredible? Again, I don't want to dissect these verses because Pastor Sean's going to spend some more time on them in the upcoming weeks, but I want to give you a bird's eye view of Paul's Holy Spirit-inspired logic here. The gospel in you should cause these things to happen, or at least cause the pursuit of these things to happen in your life. Okay, so your, so your affections and, and obedience is turned away from sin and toward Christ, and in response, you love and you serve your church family. Secondly, according to the last eight verses in Romans 12, verses 14 through 21, we're taught that our love and obedience to God is displayed by our love and service for our non-Christian friends and enemies. Our love and obedience to God is displayed by our love and service for our non-Christian friends and enemies. The Apostle Paul says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, what? Give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Our love for Christ because of the gospel working in us, should trickle down to those outside the church, especially those outside the church, amen, for the purpose that we may win them with the gospel of Jesus Christ and be obedient to the Great Commission. So to be clear and concise this morning, the gospel, number one, puts us in right relationship with God the Father. The person and work of Jesus Christ reconciles man to God the Father. We're headed this way. We're now going this way completely based off of the works of Christ. The second thing the gospel does is it puts us in right relationship with our church family. And the third thing the gospel does is it puts us in right relationship with people outside of the church, both friends and enemies. Amen? But the Apostle Paul doesn't stop there. Okay? His, his logic is impeccable. The gospel should not only affect how we love and serve God, the church, the lost, both friends and enemies, but it should affect, according to Romans 13, our relationship with the government. The gospel should affect our relationship with the government. And now that we've had this bird's eye view of Romans chapter 12, for the sake of context, I'm going to read to you these first seven verses of Romans 13 again. Now that we have the context of we've been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, it should affect all areas of our life, including this, okay? The Apostle Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? 
Then do what is good and you'll receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the... The authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. You see, the early church, just like today, could easily set the government aside in a category of its own, right? Many of us in the church, we, we hold to our Christian morals and values when we go to the voting booth and, and when it comes to the issues, if you will, but we don't express our Christian morals in a godly manner many times, do we? We present them through protest or through sarcasm or character attacks or hateful Facebook posts or Twitter posts, whenever with the intentions of converting our opponents to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're often concerned about winning the debate rather than winning the person. See, understanding chapter 12 of Romans helps us to understand why the Apostle Paul placed these seven verses in in chapter 13 in the book of Romans. I think without doing the legwork to see the context of 13, we were kind of studying the book of Romans and we're like, it's kind of strange that he would just start talking about the government in these seven verses here. That's a really odd thing to place in there. But when we look at the context, we see how the gospel should affect all areas of our life. Let's try to understand further why Paul mentions our relationship to the government. Look to the culture Paul's writing to again. We've, we've spent a lot of time on culture as we've been studying the book of Romans. And the, the reason why is it's tough to understand God's word without understanding the culture of the day that Paul's writing to, isn't it? And remember, the Jews, they're only starting to trickle back into the Roman church. Okay, Claudius, uh, the emperor Claudius, he had expelled the Christian Jews uh, from the Roman church. And the reason why is church history teaches us that they were, they were causing um, disturbances within uh, the synagogues trying to convert um, uh, non-Messianic Jews to Christianity. Now, why were they expelled? Because Christianity wasn't illegal. Actually, during this time, uh, in a lot of places, at least from the, the government's perspective, Christianity was viewed as a sect of Judaism. Okay, it wasn't a... Uh, Uh, illegal to practice Christianity, but these Jews were expelled because they were presenting presenting Christ in a a disturbing way. They they weren't presenting Christ in a peaceful way, in a loving way. So Claudius, he, he, he expelled them from the church in Rome. And like I said, at this time, they're still able to practice Christianity. And, and, and by the time the uh, Paul finished the, the letter to the Roman church. Uh, Claudius has died, and uh, this emperor named Nero. Anybody ever heard of King Nero by chance? Yes? Wicked, wicked man, right? He, he's the one who's taken over rule in the Roman church. Um, and later we know that, that Nero, he became a severe and wicked persecutor of Christians. But if you don't know about Emperor Nero, here's a few things about him. Um, first, church history teaches us that, that he murdered uh, both Peter and Paul. Okay, he, he had them executed for their Christian faith. Uh, secondly, he was believed to have murdered his mom and even some of his wives. 
Uh, third, he had a 17-year-old boy castrated so he could marry him. And then also we know that he would have Christians tied to a stake and burned at night so that he could have light in his garden. This was a wicked time to live in, wasn't it? This was a very, very evil man. But no matter the, the political climate or the political policies established by the corrupt government, both Jew and Gentile Christians are instructed by God's word to submit to the govern, governing authorities. And the same is true for you and I. Titus chapter 3, verse 2 verses states, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Those truly following after Christ in the early church understood the importance of living peaceably. Church history teaches us that, that Jews generally belie believed in submission. And by the way, when I say submission, I don't mean that that means they obey every single thing that the government says. But they obeyed so long as it didn't violate God's law, so long as it didn't violate God's word. Amen? Amen. So the times we've seen Christians, uh, people at least who claim to be Christians in church history, revolt in a, uh, uh, against the commandment to live peaceably, with other people where we end up with things like the crusades, don't we? Now, certainly the crusades weren't about spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were about power. They were about money, but, but people look back on the crusades and they say, what, look at all those who Christians, right? Look at what those Christians did in the name of religion or in the name of Christianity. That's what we get when Christians do not live peaceably. Let's bring it to today. For instance, and I know this, this is a very extreme, but bombing of abortion clinics. According to God's word, we understand abortion's murder, right? But going out and bombing an abortion clinic isn't the answer to that. Again, I know those are extremes, but how do people get to that point of rebellion, piece by piece, bit by bit, to eventually doing something so extreme? My wife and I, we... Um, we will not vote for a candidate who supports abortion because we believe what God's word teaches about life. And as Christians, uh, we're called to protect life through the means given to us by God. And so what are some of those means? We go to the voting booth, peaceful means. All right. We talk about policies put in place in a respectful manner, but we don't do it in an attacking way. We don't do it in a violent way. We don't do it in an aggressive way. And our heart of hearts is that those men and women who perform abortions, that they would be won by the gospel of Jesus Christ and they would see life through a biblical worldview. That's the goal. So let's get to Romans chapter 13, starting with verse 1 here. It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. See, the very first thing Paul does after he shifts from the exhortation for us to live peaceably with, with Christians and with non-Christian people is he charges believers to submit to the government. So our love and obedience to God is displayed by our submission to the governing authorities. Our love and obedience to God is displayed by our submission to the governing authorities. This is a difficult truth for me to grasp personally. And if I had to guess, I'd say it's difficult for all of us to grasp. And the reason why it's difficult for us to grasp is because we see injustice, don't we, church? 
We have the truth of God's word and we see people living contrary to what God's word teaches. And we also see it within leaders in our country. You know, we live in a country whose leaders do not acknowledge Christ as king, although I'm not sure that we should expect them to. We live in a country that doesn't honor the truth of God's word. We live in a country that doesn't value human life under a certain age. We live in a country where the home is under attack, yet we're called to submit to the governing authorities. How can this be? How could we possibly submit to the governing authorities? But in struggling with this in my own life, I decided to dig a little bit deeper. And I looked to Pharaoh in Exodus who enslaved the Israelites for many, many years. He enslaved the Israelites before God sent Moses to deliver them. Pharaoh was a, an idol-worshipping slave owner who was power-hungry and, and murderous. However, the Israelites, they, they didn't revolt. They didn't protest for their rights. They abided by the Egyptian law, and they waited on the Lord to deliver them in his timing and in his way. They submitted to the governing powers placed above them. Then I flipped over a little bit and I I looked at King Nebuchadnezzar. He captured God's people. He brought them into exile known as Babylon, okay? And he tried to educate God out of their thinking. And he tried to force Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Andrew informed me that I pronounced those wrong, but I'm a Georgia hick, so we're stuck with that. Um, but he tried to educate God out of them, and he tried to, to force them to, to, to worship idols. Yet they refused respectfully, right? And they were committed to worshiping Yahweh. And then I look at the early Christian church shortly after the ascension of Christ, and I see the rulers like King Nero, who we just looked at a minute ago, and who violently ruled the people he was chosen to lead. I look at these things and I realize that the evils of this land are nothing new. They're nothing new. And you know what the Bible teaches us? Is that God put these men in place. God put these men in place. Daniel chapter 2, the first part of verse 21, it says, He changes times and seasons, he removes kings, and he sets up kings. The second part of verse 1 of Romans chapter 13, which we're looking at it, Paul states, those that exist have been instituted by who? By God. Those who govern us have been instituted by God. God himself is the source of government in society. We've learned very much through the series that God's completely sovereign over all things, and surely he's sovereign over the people that he puts in place to lead us. Amen? This is difficult for, our, for us to all to digest, I know. It's difficult for me to digest, but it's what God's Word teaches us, and we're to submit to those in governing positions. However, the beauty of God and His faithfulness and His unchanging character, we know when we read God's Word that the stories don't end with Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar and Nero. God delivers His people. God sent Moses to plead with Pharaoh to let the people of God go. And and when Pharaoh finally decided to to keep the Israelites enslaved and, and under Egyptian law, God destroyed Pharaoh and he received the glory for it. And he rescued his faithful. 
God delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the the furnace when Nebuchadnezzar tried to force them to to bow down and to worship the idol. And they said, Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to worship Yahweh, the only one true and living God, but we accept the consequences that we know are under your law. That's the death penalty. So you go ahead and you throw us in the furnace. We're willing to accept that, but we can't forsake our God, our Yahweh. And we know that we serve a God that's able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't deliver us, he's still Yahweh. He's still God. He's still ruler even over you. Christians, we have to approach our Christian faith in this manner. By no means is God telling us not to stand up for the truth of his word. He's telling us that there's a God-ordained process to do it, and we fail time and time again at doing it appropriately. Look with me at the next verse in Romans chapter 13. Verse 2 says, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. The 19th century Scottish evangelist Robert Haldane, he wrote this about this passage. He says, The people of God then ought to consider resistance to the government under which they live as a very awful crime, even as resistance to God himself. Isn't that a thought? Resistance to the government is to resist God himself because God establishes the government. Think about the arrest of Jesus in the garden. Jesus was, he was unjustly accused and executed by a corrupt government. At the arrest, the, the apostle Peter, he, he, what does he do? You guys know the story. He draws a sword and he cuts the ear off of a soldier. If there was ever an appropriate time to rebel, it was probably that moment, wasn't it? Here it is, the, the Messiah being delivered over by a corrupt government to be executed and his disciples who have grown so close to him step in the way to try to protect him. That's a moment to rebel, isn't it? But look at what Jesus says to Peter. It's very intriguing. Jesus says, put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the what? The sword. He's saying that if you murder, you're subject to the death penalty. Do you think that I can appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? If you're going to try to get in the way, how can the scriptures possibly be fulfilled? Jesus was telling Peter that no matter how noble your act is, murderers are executed according to the law. And you're about to become a murderer if you follow through with this. And in the process of him trying to knock some sense into Peter, he, he reminds him of his sovereignty and his plan, saying, I'm in control of this. Do you not think that this is my will? There's purpose in suffering. There's purpose even in evil when we don't realize it. Praise God for that. We should, with the psalmist, declare that I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The creator. We trust in him. We hope in him. Keep looking over the next few verses with me. Verses 3 in the first part of verse 4. The apostle Paul says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. John MacArthur, he's a pastor and teacher of Grace Community Church. He says this, that Paul's obviously speaking in general terms as he himself has suffered a great deal at the hands of rulers who 
have abused him for no other reason than for his godly behavior. But in that day, as throughout history, even the most wicked regimes were a deterrent to murder, theft, and many other crimes of the populace. God intends for civil government to promote public good. Consider again the truth that God's established the government and those who rule over us to promote public good. Proverbs chapter 8 says, By me kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. The role of the government is to decree what is just. However, when governments fail to do so, and we all know they fail to do so, it's sinful for us to respond in a disrespectful and violent manner. We are to look towards peace because of our identity in Jesus Christ. We carry a testimony, church. Look over the next few verses. It says, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. The government official is a servant of God, biblically speaking. Whether or not he or she acknowledges God, God's purpose, and God's plan, as we've seen time and time again over the course of your lives, but over the course of this sermon series, biblically, we've learned that God's plan and purpose cannot be thwarted. God's plan will be accomplished, and he will receive glory even from those who don't acknowledge him. We talked about this several weeks ago. Is we're not waiting for Jesus to reign Jesus has been sitting at the right hand of God the Father reigning since the ascension of Christ. He is king. He is reigning. He is Lord over all. He is completely in control. However, even if the government official doesn't recognize God, we're to remain in subjection and to steer away from breaking the law because of the differences we have with the government. We are to be a peaceful people. I think a lot of times this, uh, this gets murky for us. You know, it gets really murky for us. I know when someone's infringing upon my rights, um, I get very defensive. Uh, and we do, in fact, live in a country that, was, uh, that takes pride in being free, don't we? And I'm thankful that we're free. I mean, in the Declaration of Independence itself, we read, uh, we hold these truths to be what? Self-evident that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? Happiness and the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness. But as Christians, I think we should have more of this mindset. When Paul states in Romans chapter 16, he says, But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin become, and have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin. And this is key. Having, uh, have become slaves of righteousness. Maybe we should look at that identity more, that we're called to be slaves of righteousness. This comes before anything else in the Christian life, including our rights, including our rights. Could you imagine if a church embraced this truly, if we embraced that identity even over the identity of the Declaration of Independence, that we are called to be slaves of righteousness. We were saved. We were bought with a price. And God has a purpose and a plan for our lives. Love and obedience to God is when we set God's glory above our personal rights. Love and obedience to God is displayed when we set God's glory 
above our personal rights. Look at these last two verses with me. This is the fun part. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Believe it or not, love and obedience to God is displayed by our faithfulness in paying taxes according to God's word. This is a part of our submission to God's established standard in his word. There's one preacher that says, if you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. (laughs) One commentator says, no one enjoys paying taxes, but taxes are a, a part of everyday life. While it's appropriate for citizens, including Christians, to take advantages of deductions and other benefits that the law provides, no citizen, especially a Christian, is justified in circumventing payment of taxes by any means that is illegal or unethical. So I want to make sense of all of this for you and for myself this weekend. Why is it that God places such an emphasis on our relationship with the government? And why did Paul include this passage in Romans chapter 13? And why did I spend an entire sermon talking about it? Why is it that we're to submit to the governing authorities placed above us, even when they commit godless acts shameful to God in his word? And I believe, according to God's word, this is the reason why. It's because we stand with the Israelites who were in bondage, with Daniel and with his friends, with the early church who was under the persecution of Nero, with our brothers and our sisters around the world. And surely we don't suffer near as much as any of they do. Any of those Christians, our brothers and sisters, have in the past and do around the world. We got it good compared to them. But we're called to stand with them And declare with the Apostle Paul that I've decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. Christians, we are to be about our Father's business. That's the reason why we gather here together. That's the reason why God saved us for this purpose that he could reconcile every tribe, every tongue, and every nation with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul includes this in here. Gospel edges. It should touch every aspect of our lives. The final takeaway I want you to have this weekend is that love and obedience to God is displayed when the great commission is being accomplished through us. Love and obedience to God is displayed when the great commission is being accomplished through us. And we can't do that unless we get all of these right. We are to live in peaceful submission so that we can fulfill the great commission, church family. Our voices a lot of times can't be heard through the shouting the church is doing in the political world. We Christians are to be heralds of the gospel. And the only way to effectively change policy in this country is by winning the person through humble teaching of Jesus. And the only way to teach Jesus is through love, respect, and humility. Paul uses a word when encouraging Timothy in First and Second Timothy, that it constantly weighs on the, my mind. It's a Greek word. It's uh, the Greek word anepileptos, which means um, above reproach. And uh, the reason why Paul uses this word is he was trying to remind Timothy that, that, uh, that his life and actions needed to be above reproach because of his identity in Christ and his call to proclaim the gospel, the same call that you and I have. 
Now, this Greek word, it carries the idea of a suitcase. And suitcases all have handles, right? And anybody who grabs that handle can pick that suitcase up and walk in anywhere they want to walk it and set it down. Paul's telling Timothy, don't allow anybody to have a handle. Don't be a suitcase. Don't be a suitcase. Don't allow people to jerk around the testimony of Jesus Christ wherever they want to jerk it. Don't be a suitcase. And the church, unfortunately, allows this to happen in the world of politics. We're so busy shouting louder than the other person and that we're carried in a bunch of different directions and we're distracted from our purpose, our primary purpose and our primary call in life. We're distracted from the Great Commission. We never get around to doing that because by the time we get done shouting and making a lot of noise, we're too tired to do it. The charge is for us to live our life above reproach so that we can fulfill the Great Commission. 1 Peter chapter 2 says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperors as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, here's our purpose, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, not for the sake of making them look foolish, but for the sake of them seeing truth. I want to leave you with a quote by C.S. Lewis in the book Mere Christianity, and I'll close this in prayer. C.S. Lewis, he reminds us of this. He says, If individuals live only 70 years, then a state or a nation or a civilization which may last for a thousand years is more important than an individual. But if Christianity is true, then the individual is not only more important, but incomparably more important. For he is everlasting, and the life of a state or a civilization compared with his is only for a moment. Church, win the person, not the debate. Amen? Let's close our time in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, God, I pray. God, I pray for myself. Pray for the people in this room, Father, that, uh, Lord, every day we have to preach the gospel to ourselves. We have to be reminded of the gospel. God, in every day we have to remind each other of the gospel. And so, Lord, um, give us your perspective. God, we get so hung up on things that are temporary. Lord, but help us to see this life through an eternal lens. God, give us your love for people. Give us your heartbeat for people. Give us your heartbeat for the lost, Father, that, God, that we won't look at people, God, as opponents, people who, who disagree with what your word says, but, but, Lord, that we would look at them as an opportunity to, to share the gospel in love and humility, Father, that, that one more may be added to your kingdom. Thank you for that good deposit, Lord, as you say in your word, that you've entrusted to us, Father. I pray that we would always be a, a people that, that handle it, Father, reverently. Teach us to be good stewards with your gospel truth. Lord, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Guys, this is our offertory time. If you are a guest with us, we don't want you to feel any obligation to give. This is just another way that... Uh,
The Church of Jesus Christ fulfills the Great Commission by uh, uh, giving of tithes and offerings. And uh, while the offering is being taken up, uh, if you would, you guys look up on the screen to see a lot of the activities that, the, uh, that uh, Josh took the students on this summer at SWO.